There are a lot of people out there who claim to speak for Jesus and who want you to follow them. There's Francis, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, who claims by his titles to be Jesus' representative on earth. There is Bartholomew, the Archbishop of Constantinople. He's the leader of the Eastern Orthodox churches. More locally, we've got Pentecostal and Charismatic circles who have people running around saying, I'm an apostle or I'm a prophet, and they claim that they can speak God's word directly over your life. There are celebrity pastors. There are famous authors who think they're getting new revelation from Jesus. There are televangelists who say, if you just send them money, Jesus will give you lots of health and wealth. And beyond all of that, there are local churches connected to dozens, if not hundreds, of denominations. You know, there are more flavors of Presbyterians than there are at Baskin-Robbins. And there are several types of Baptists and Lutherans. But even among non-denominational churches, there are tons of different approaches to Christianity, from massive megachurches to tiny home churches and everything in between. With all sorts of different kinds of leaders in these churches, from the very faithful to the very corrupt. There are so many voices out there. Who should you listen to? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning as we begin to study the first letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me set the stage for what we're going to look at this morning and the next few weeks. In Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul briefly visited the ancient metropolis of Ephesus, which was a very important city in what is today western Turkey. And Paul preached a bit in the Ephesian synagogue, and he started a little church there. But then he had to leave, because Paul's mission was to travel around the world and plant different churches. But after Paul left, other capable men came and led the young Ephesian church for a while, until Paul returned. And in Acts 19, we read that when Paul returned, he spent more than two years in Ephesus strengthening that church. But eventually it came time for Paul to leave again. And he called together the leaders, the elders of the Ephesian church. And Paul said to them in Acts chapter 20, I know that none of you will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And with that, Paul left, believing his work to be done in Ephesus. But Paul's warning proved to be true. After he left, a number of false teachers did emerge, and they hurt the church in Ephesus. And we know about this because a large amount of the New Testament is written to address the Ephesian church or other churches nearby Ephesus. Uh, the books of Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon... 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation are all addressed to the Ephesian church or to churches just down the road from Ephesus. When you read these letters, you find out most of them tell us there were doctrinal issues in the Ephesian church. Now here in 1 Timothy, we're near the beginning of the Ephesian church's long struggle with heresy. 
And what has happened is some false teaching has emerged in the church. It seems that this heresy started while Paul was still in Ephesus. But Paul dealt with the first guys who taught this error while he was still there. And thinking that he had fixed things, Paul left. But after Paul left, the heresy grew worse to the point that now it is profoundly impacting the church. And while he's away doing more missionary work, Paul learns about this. Paul had thought that his work in Ephesus was done, but now he finds out that it isn't. So he begins to make plans to return to Ephesus. And in the meantime, before he can return, he writes a letter to an old friend who is now serving in the Ephesian church, Timothy. And in this letter, Paul tells Timothy, fix things in Ephesus. Now, today, as we begin to look at this letter, we're going to see Paul talk about the difference between the true gospel and the false message preached by the Ephesian heretics. And as we look at this, we're going to learn about Christian leaders, and we're going to see what kinds of Christian leaders we should follow. Now, this morning, we're going to see three points. First, we're going to see that God uses the true gospel to graciously transform sinners. Second, we're going to see that false teaching produces confusion and destruction, and it keeps sinners under the wrath of God. And third, we're going to see what the gospel produces in Christians, the real gospel, and especially what it should produce in Christian leaders. Let's start with our first point. God uses the true gospel to graciously transform sinners. As in most ancient letters, 1 Timothy begins by identifying its author, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, maybe today we're here where we think, who is Paul and why should I care what he has to say? The reason we need to listen to Paul is because of his office. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostles were handpicked by Jesus to be his official representatives. So when Paul speaks as an apostle, he is speaking for Jesus. He is declaring God's word. And God in Christ is speaking through Paul. And so we need to listen to Paul because he speaks for Jesus. But you know, a lot of people make this claim today, right? I'm an apostle. I speak for Jesus. Listen to me. How do we know that Paul really was an apostle? This was a big question in the early church. Many false teachers of the first century tried to challenge Paul's apostleship. And this seems to have been going on in Ephesus, because in 1 Timothy 2.7, Paul feels a need to defend himself by saying, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. So why should we believe Paul when he says he's an apostle? Well, we know that Paul is a true apostle because of the way that he came to faith. And Paul talks about this later in our chapter in verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul had a checkered past. And the reason that Paul's past was filled with sin was that he had once been an unbeliever. Friends, even the apostles were not born righteous. No, like the rest of us, they were born spiritually dead, disconnected from God, the author of life and truth. And in this terrible state, Paul says he was ignorant. Now, that's not to say Paul was dumb. He wasn't. He was smart. He was well-educated. In Acts 22, Paul says he studied under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. 
In Galatians 1, he says, I advanced in Judaism far beyond most of those my own age. Paul excelled in his studies in Judaism, studying the scriptures and the rabbinic writings. And yet, despite all of that knowledge and learning, Paul says he was ignorant because he didn't really know God. He didn't understand what God was doing. So when Paul first heard about Jesus, he didn't say, wow, everything I've been studying in the Old Testament is finally here. No. His first reaction was to blaspheme Jesus and to viciously persecute the early Christians, imprisoning and even murdering some of them. Paul did some terrible things in ignorance. Now understand that Paul here is not saying that his ignorance excuses his sin. Far from it. In just a minute, Paul's going to say he was incredibly guilty before God. But Paul's terrible sins were a result of his darkened spiritual condition. And yet, in the midst of this darkness, God showed mercy to Paul. Paul didn't deserve mercy. Paul deserved God's fury. But God graciously intervened in Paul's life. In his own infinite kindness and love, God chose to show mercy to Paul and to transform Paul. Paul went from being spiritually dead, ignorant, and evil to being spiritually alive and characterized by faith and love and service. How? How did God change Paul? In verse 15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Friends, know today that salvation and life transformation is only possible through the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, which is that Jesus Christ came into this world. God the Son took on true humanity so that he could save sinners. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for human sin, taking our sin upon himself, receiving the penalty that you and I deserve for all that we've done in opposition to God. But now Paul says the benefits of Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death have been applied to him. This happened in Acts chapter 9. You might remember Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was going to persecute some more Christians. And then, bang, the risen Jesus appeared to him and confronted him with the truth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is raised from the dead. And Paul responded to that. And the only way you can respond to that, if you truly apprehend it, Paul repented. He stopped being Jesus' enemy. He believed. He followed and submitted himself to Jesus. And so Paul was saved, and he received mercy and forgiveness for his sins. And that's remarkable, because Paul's sins were really terrible. I want you to think, for a moment, about the worst thing that you have ever done. And you think about that, whatever it is. How does it make you feel? I think on some level you know, right, that I deserve God's judgment because of what I've done. But however bad whatever it was that you did was, Paul says he did a lot worse. In fact, think about the most evil people in world history. Hitler, Pol Pot, Bin Laden, Margaret Sanger, Charles Manson. As evil as these people were, Paul says, I did a lot worse than any of them too. In fact, Paul here says, I was the foremost. He says, I'm the worst sinner. 
You know, when I was younger, I thought Paul exaggerated when he made this claim, but he's not. We know that because he's about to make a theological point from it. Paul was the worst sinner. How can that be? Because the magnitude of Paul's evil was that great. Because before he was saved, in his heart, Paul said, I hate and will oppose everything having to do with Jesus and his people. And then Paul acted on it. Whatever he could do to hurt the cause of Christ, to hurt the people of Jesus, he did it. He harmed, he imprisoned, he killed as much as he could. But not only was the evil in Paul's heart great and the evil in Paul's actions great, but remember Paul did all of this evil after having studied the scriptures for many years. Paul should have known better than to hate God's Messiah. Now, yes, his unbelief clouded his mind. It made him ignorant of the truth. But all of his exposure to the scriptures made Paul more accountable and more responsible to God. And so Paul, the person who was most a sworn enemy of Jesus, was also the person who should have most known better. So Paul is the worst sinner. But there's great news. Look at verse 16. Paul says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus saved Paul, and here's why. Because if Jesus can save and transform the worst sinner who's ever lived, that should give the rest of us a lot of hope. Amen? If God is willing to forgive a wicked man like Paul, forgive all his murders, all his persecutions, all his blasphemies, then, friends, God is willing to patiently forgive all of the worst sins in your life and mine. Everybody who repentantly believes in Jesus Christ will find forgiveness, salvation, and true life change. God did it for the worst sinner. He can and will do it for you and me. And so whatever that dark sin is in your past, I asked you to think about a minute ago. Friends, you can be forgiven for that. And every other sin you've ever committed, you can find new life in Jesus, just like Paul did, in the same way that Paul did, by turning from your life of sin and entrusting yourself to Jesus. But just to make the point even clearer, not only did God forgive and save Paul, God called Paul into service. Jesus chose Paul to be the last apostle. And as Paul reflects upon all that God has miraculously done in his life through the gospel of Jesus Christ, what does he do? In verse 12 he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He erupts in verse 17 in this declaration of praise. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says God is sovereign. He is king. He is eternal. He's outside of time, ruling over all ages and generations. He is immortal, incapable of death, decay, or destruction. He is invisible because he's a spirit. He is unique, friends. He is the only God. And to him belongs honor and glory forever. Because this God forgives the most wretched sinners. He forgave Paul. He forgave me. And friends, I can tell you, he's willing to forgive you. We sang a minute ago, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Friends, there is amazing grace because the one and only God in love sent his son to die for you so that if you repentantly believe, you will become a part of the people for his own possession who will dwell with him in endless glory. And that, if you really think about it, believing friends, ought to move our hearts to tremendous praise. And so today I want you to know 
None of us are beyond God's forgiveness. None of us have sinned so grievously that we are disqualified from salvation. Because God saved somebody a lot worse than anything you or I could ever do. God saved Paul. And God can save me and you if we turn to Him in faith. If you've never received God's mercy or transformation, turn to Christ today. And if God has saved you, praise Him today. Praise Him in your hearts. Praise Him with your words and your songs. Praise Him in how you live your lives. Because God uses the true gospel to graciously transform sinners. We come now to our second point, though. And here we're going to see that false teaching, in contrast, generates confusion and destruction. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's worried about what's going on in Ephesus, and so he writes this letter to his friend Timothy. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you should know this name, Timothy. Timothy was one of Paul's most reliable assistants in his missionary work. Paul met Timothy while he was still very young, while Timothy was still very young, and Paul took Timothy under his wing and acted as a spiritual father for him. And Timothy traveled with Paul throughout the ancient world, and they planted many churches together. But now, Paul's no longer with Timothy. They're separated for reasons we're going to see in just a minute. And so Paul writes to Timothy here as his son in the faith. There's a lot of affection here. And Paul prays that Timothy would receive three wonderful blessings that come from God through the true gospel. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. Mercy, the forgiveness of God. And peace, friendship with God instead of hostility. Paul reminds Timothy of these products of the true gospel and prays that Timothy would enjoy them anew at the start of this letter. And I think Paul reminds Timothy here of the true gospel for an important reason. Because Timothy is surrounded by people who are not teaching the true gospel, but who are teaching something radically different and false. Look at verse 3. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Here's why Paul and Timothy went their separate ways. It seems in Acts 20 that when Paul left Ephesus, he told Timothy to stay behind. Paul had to keep doing his mission work. But this time, instead of taking Timothy with him, Paul decided it was necessary for Timothy to remain in Ephesus. And Paul told Timothy why he had to stay and help this church. He had to charge to command certain people not to teach different doctrine. Paul had just dealt with some false teaching in Ephesus, teaching that was different and contrary to the gospel that he preached. And Paul was worried that when he left, this heresy would make a comeback. So he says to Timothy, you stay. And if you see this starting again, you shut it down. But unfortunately, even though Timothy stayed behind, the false teaching returned. And so now Paul writes to Timothy and says, fix what's going on. And to make good on this charge that Paul had given him when he told him to stay and help lead the Ephesian church. Paul may also intend for this letter, which is just addressed to Timothy, to be read to the entire church at Ephesus. And if so, Paul is lending his own authority here to what Timothy is saying. He's backing Timothy up in Timothy's attempts to stop this false doctrine. Now, what was the false doctrine that Paul was so concerned about here? Paul never describes it in a chunk of text in this book, but based on what Paul says across the book, I think we can reconstruct some of what the false teachers were saying. 
In chapter 6, Paul tells us that the heretics claimed they had a special knowledge. And what did this knowledge consist of? Well, we learn about it here in chapter 1, verse 4. Paul tells Timothy, stop the heretics from devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Look at verse 6. Paul says, certain persons, by swerving from these, from true things, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The Ephesian heretics were fascinated with certain ideas found in first century Judaism. You know, one of the biggest questions that early Christians had to wrestle with was, what's the connection between Judaism and Christianity? Or put differently, how can Gentiles be rightly related to the God who has historically been worshipped only by Israel? The apostles said that both Jews and Gentiles alike are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But many false teachers in the first century said, no, 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 no. Gentiles, what you have to do is become more Jewish. And the heretics here seem to be making that claim. The heretics are really interested in the Old Testament law, and they claim to be teachers of the law. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they were also obsessed with what Paul calls myths and endless genealogies. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that there are some things in there that are very strange. And there are things in there you say, I wish I knew more about that, but the Bible doesn't really elaborate on those things. What was the world like between the fall and the flood? Who are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6? What are angels and what do they do? Questions like these. And in the centuries between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, Jewish authors wrote a number of speculative works that claimed to answer these questions. Now, the answers that they gave came out of the author's imaginations. They didn't come from the Bible. But these works said, we can make sense of all of the obscure parts of the Old Testament. And they tried to do this by inventing myths or engaging in allegorical interpretation, pretending that the Bible contained secret hidden meanings, which only I know. And these bizarre works were filled with wacky genealogies and nonsensical visions. And it seems like the false teachers in Ephesus loved these kind of books. And here's why. Because this kind of literature allowed the heretics to portray themselves as very knowledgeable. And it made other people look up to them. Wow, you know so much about Enoch and the Nephilim. You must be really spiritual. That's what people were thinking. And so you had people in the Ephesian church, including leaders in the church, being drawn into the speculative nonsense and the false teachers who traded on it. And as a result, Christians in the church neglected what really mattered. They neglected what Paul calls the stewardship that is from God by faith. They neglected true gospel ministry, making sure the church was obeying Christ's word, encouraging people to live out the gospel. Instead, the church drifted away from the centrality of the gospel after this worthless speculative nonsense. Now, I've got to tell you, friends, in this, the Ephesian heretics are a lot like false teachers in our own day. In fact, we're going to see now three profound similarities in our passage between the heretics Paul is warning about and false teachers in every generation, including ours. And here's the first one which is that false teachers often major on minor points of doctrine. 
They love to obsess about trivialities and minutia. You very rarely will find a false teacher who gets up and talks a lot about the glory and holiness of God or the sinless perfection of Christ or Jesus' atoning death or the resurrection or the sufficiency of the scriptures. But you will very often find false teachers who want to convince you that they understand exactly how the end times are going to unfold or that the most important parts of the Bible are the parts that are the hardest to understand, which are the least clearly connected to the gospel. Or that orthodoxy is defined by your choice in Bible translation, or your view on the age of the earth, or some other tertiary matter. Paul says later in this book that false teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. And friends, that's true. People who are obsessed about every detail of your theological vocabulary, who always want to pick a doctrinal fight, who always want to paint themselves as, a, as the true teacher and everyone else is false, or who go out of their way to stand on novel interpretations of the Bible, or random, eclectic, unimportant theological matters. These are not people for you to spend your time listening to. These are the kinds of people who are likely to lead you into error because true teachers will center their instruction on the gospel of Christ. And false teachers will pretend that everything revolves around some other minute issue. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. But this emphasis on minutia was not the only error of the heretics. Because they also misinterpreted and misapplied the Jewish law. And this is probably where they came into most conflict with Paul and the truth. Now this shouldn't surprise us because the question, how does the Old Testament law relate to believers in Christ, was constantly an area of controversy in the first century. And this was a question Paul had to deal with many times. Paul previously wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 that Christ is our peace. He has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The Old Testament law historically caused great division between Jews and Gentiles. Historically, Gentiles hated Jews because the Jews kept God's law, and Jews hated Gentiles because Gentiles didn't keep God's law. And so the law divided Jews from Gentiles. But now, Paul says, in Christ, Jews and Gentiles are brought together. And this is possible now because the law stands completed. Its legal effect has been abolished. So how does that work? Well, in Matthew 11, we learn that the law is itself a prophecy. The law prophesied the coming of Christ. But now Christ has come. He lived the perfect life of obedience described in the law. And according to Matthew 5, Christ is the fulfillment. He is the culmination of the law. And so now in Christ's death, the law stands completed and its legal force is concluded. Romans 10, 4 says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Old Testament law belonged to a different era than the era in which the church of Jesus Christ operates today. And so Paul says, you should never think that you can earn your salvation by keeping the law. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That was never true that you could save yourself by keeping the law. Likewise, Paul says, You don't grow yourself in righteousness by keeping the old law. In Galatians 3.2 and 3. Keeping the law won't make you more like Christ. The era of the law has utterly concluded, Paul says. 
But many false teachers heard this and thought, here's a chance for me to discredit Paul. Because then they'd come along and say, oh, you listen to Paul? Paul speaks against God's word. Paul thinks God's law is evil. Paul is a false apostle. Listen to me instead. And that's what the heretics in Ephesus were doing. Instead of teaching the same gospel and doctrine as Paul, the Ephesian heretics engaged in the second hallmark of false teaching, which is legalism. They said, humanity commends itself to God by keeping the law, the old law, or some other code of conduct. Now, the Ephesian heretics claimed to be teachers of the law, but if you look back at verse 7, you'll remember Paul says, actually, they were clueless about it. They didn't have a clue what they were talking about. We'll see this later in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We read that the false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. So the heretics say, hey, all you Christians, keep the kosher law. They tried to resurrect that part of the law. But then they also said, the law forbids marriage. Now that's nonsense. That's nowhere in the Old Testament law. But these guys are clueless. And why are they clueless? Because they're ignorant and unbelief, just like Paul used to be but they don't see themselves as ignorant. They say, we have true knowledge, and you can only be saved if you listen to us. Now, Paul isn't going to let these lies stand. Here's how he responds. Look at verse 8. Paul says, now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Paul doesn't think the law was evil. Paul says in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But the old law is only good, Paul says, if you use it lawfully. If you teach the truth about what the Old Testament law was and apply it properly. But if, like these heretics, you come along and you don't understand the law and you make up a wacky interpretation and try to force it on people, that's not good. That's evil. And that's what these guys were doing. And Paul says the real issue here is they don't understand who the law was given for. The law was not given to make people righteous. The law was not given as a standard for righteous living for believers in Jesus Christ on the side of the cross. No, Paul says, the law was given for a different reason. It was given for the unrighteous. What does he mean? Romans 3.20, Paul says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was given to expose human wrongdoing, to show that we could not earn God's favor and that therefore salvation can only be by God's grace and not by our works. So the heretic's entire thinking about the law is wrong. The law is given to expose human inability and wrongdoing. And so Paul says in verse 9, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. These are the people that need to hear the truth of God's law. It's not believers in Jesus Christ who stand forgiven because of God's grace. It is those instead who are lawless, who reject God's word. Those who are disobedient, who are rebels against God's rule. The ungodly and sinners, those who revel in what God forbids. The unholy and profane, those who live only for this world. Those who dishonor their parents with violence. Those who commit murder. Those who are sexually immoral. Who participate in any sexual conduct outside of God's design for sex. Which is within one marriage consisting of only one man and one woman. 
Paul includes here men who practice homosexuality. Paul uses here a very graphic Greek term, which can be most translated in our setting as men who have sex with men. There's probably some more literal ways we could render that, but that's about as, as clear as I want to be right here. There's no ambiguity in what Paul's talking about. He's speaking clearly about homosexual sex. Paul also talks about slavers here. People who engage in human trafficking, kidnapping people and putting them into slavery, like what happened in the Atlantic slave trade for centuries. He talks about lying and perjury, swearing a false oath. All of these things are against God's law. Colossians 3 says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God gave his law so that in former times people would know they transgressed when they committed these sins and that they needed God's mercy or they were going to get owned. That's why God gave the law. Not because legalism is true, but not that by avoiding these sins you could earn favor with God. But the law was a declaration that whoever did these things was under God's wrath. Now wait a minute, you might say. The law now stands fulfilled in Christ. So does that mean all of these things are now okay? Jesus has come. So now if I don't like my parents, I can beat them up. I can have sex with whoever I want. I can lie. Is that right? No, friends. And this leads us now to discuss a third hallmark of heresy, which is licentiousness. And licentiousness is a lie that says, because Christ has come, we can now live however we want, apart from moral strictures or guidelines. But friends, this idea is also false and damning. Because apart from the Old Testament law, there are still ethical entailments to the gospel. Yes, we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes, we are no longer bound to the old law. But when Christ saves us, we're transformed. We are set free from slavery to sin. We're no longer who we used to be. We have newness of life, Romans 6 says. And we're also to be the people who confess Jesus as our Lord. And so, friends, our new life should look different than our old life because our new life should be lived in obedience to the commands of Christ, which either he gave us directly or through his apostles. In short, the commands of the New Testament. And this idea that obedience should generally characterize believers is so true that Paul warns elsewhere that there are, in fact, lifestyles that true believers can no longer live in, such that if we claim to be a believer and live in one of these lifestyles of unrepentant sin, we show that our profession of faith is false. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You cannot say, I'm a Christian who gets drunk every night. Or I'm a Christian who makes a living as a hitman. Or I'm a gay Christian. Or I'm a Christian who practices human trafficking. All of these are nonsensical statements. They describe categories that do not exist because the true believer cannot live in lifestyles characterized by the unrepentant practice of these sins. Now friends, hear me on this. Formerly all of us were marked by sins like these. But believing friends, Paul says, such were, past tense, such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, and justified by Jesus Christ. 
If you've been saved, you're not what you used to be. Your life has been changed. You've been made new. And now you can obey God's word. Yes, you won't live it out perfectly. There will be times, even when seasons, when it seems like sin has you beat. But you'll still struggle. What you won't do is just give in and surrender to it and say, this is who I really am. I, I define myself by my sin. No, because the, the gospel generates ethical changes in our lives, even though the old law is no longer in effect. And so licentiousness is also false. The coming of Christ doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. So here's what Paul says. The heretics are wrong. The old law isn't given to guide believers today. It was given to expose wrongdoing in former times. Because the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient and everybody on that whole list that we just read. But look, look at how Paul ends this in verse 9 and 10. He says, And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. In former times, the sins on this list simply transgressed the Old Testament law. But you know what? On this side of the cross, these things are still wrong. Not just because they were part of the old law. They're wrong because they run against the gospel of Christ. They're contrary to sound doctrine. They're contrary to the New Testament commands of Christ and the apostles. And those who persist in such false lifestyles show that they do not belong to Christ. They are not justified. They still need a Savior. And so, friends, you need to know this morning that you can discern false teaching by these three marks. By those who major on the minors, trivialities and minutia. By legalism, people saying what really makes you right before God is obeying some set of rules, even the old law. And licentiousness, saying Jesus doesn't care how you live. But maybe you hear all this and say, hey, Ben, you know, you sound so old-fashioned. What's the big deal? Everybody's got an opinion. Paul's got an opinion. I've got an opinion. Oprah's got an opinion. Why can't I just believe whatever I want to believe? Why do I have to listen to Paul? And here's the answer. Because there's only one gospel. There's only one way to be saved. And every other so-called gospel, every other bit of spiritual instruction that conflicts with this will only destroy you in the end. Paul says this at the end of our chapter. Look at verse 19. Paul says, by rejecting this, the truth, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Friend, if you give space for false teaching in your life, it will destroy you because it will tell you a lie. It will urge you to walk in sin, which will ruin your life. And it will distance you from the one and only gospel that can save you. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Paul says in Galatians 1, If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says anyone who teaches a false gospel needs to go to hell because they're leading you into condemnation. So reject and avoid false teachers. And this is what Paul gets at in verse 20 when he says among the false teachers are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here Paul names two of the guys who started the false teaching in Ephesus. And Paul says, here's how I dealt with them. I handed them over to Satan. That doesn't sound good. What's that mean? Paul uses the same language in 1 Corinthians 5 when he told the Corinthians to expel a man from their church who was engaged in unrepentant sin. What Paul is saying here is, you see a false teacher, put him out of your church. Do not allow him to stay in the church and corrupt the church and lead people into hell in the church. Instead, put them out of the church and when you do, God will use Satan to torment them. 
You say, wow, that sounds really harsh. But 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 says, actually, this is so they'll hit rock bottom and maybe they'll repent and be saved. So we see in this second point, and this is a serious point, the immense danger of false teachers. And we've seen ways to recognize them. We've seen that they're dangerous, and we've seen that we need to put them out. We come now to our last point, most briefly, but most importantly. And here we see what the true gospel produces in Christians, and especially in true Christian leaders. Heresy produces confusion and destruction. The gospel produces life change. And in the last verses of our chapter, Paul describes this life change in a specific way, which he introduces in verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Back in verse 3, Paul gave Timothy a command, oppose false teaching. Here's the purpose of that command. Why must Timothy oppose false teaching? Because he's to produce love. That might surprise us. Because when we think about opposing false teaching, the last thing we think is that that's a loving thing. Because that's what we were conditioned to think about love from our culture. We think, oh, telling someone they're wrong, that's not loving. Rebuking someone, that's not loving. But Paul says, no, actually opposing false teaching is being loving. Because love is to seek the good of other people. And believing friends, all of us are to be people marked by love. 1 John 4 says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Friends, we are to love one another. And Paul says if we are to love one another, we must resist the presence of false teaching in the church and in each other's lives. Why? Because we saw a minute ago, false teaching destroys. But if we love one another, surely we want to protect each other from facing destruction in this life and the next. So a love for one another, a love for Christ, and a love for the truth must compel us to resist false doctrine. And so the charge to Timothy to resist false teaching, in a sense, is a general command to all believers, because we're all called to love. But this charge also has particular implications for believers who hold positions of leadership over others. If you're a leader in this church, then like Timothy, one day you're going to have to give an account to Jesus for your service. How did you lead everybody else here? Did you protect them from error? If you're a husband, if you're a parent, there are people who are in your care how are you going to defend them from error? If you're mentoring or evangelizing other people, you're accountable to tell them the truth. Friends, if we're doing any of these things, and we all should be doing at least the evangelism part. Friends, we need to love those we speak to, and so we need to protect them from error. This is what love requires. But how do we produce this love? Well, Paul tells us where love comes from here, and he says from three places. He says it comes from our hearts, it comes from our consciences, and it comes from our faith. And this reminds us of our need for transformation in the gospel. Because apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins, our hearts are depraved, our consciences are corrupted, and we have no faith. Worse still, the false teachers in Ephesus are described in chapter 4 as devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. False teachers' hearts are devoted to Satan. Their consciences are seared. They don't even have any problems with themselves when they commit evil. And they have a fraudulent faith. They deceive the people of God. They cannot produce any love or any good thing. Instead, false teaching, according to chapter 6, produces envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction. It's a means for people to get gain, Paul says. False teaching produces conflict and greed. But friends, if you belong to Christ... 
This is what Jesus does in your life. He cleanses your heart. He forgives your sin. He makes you new. He gives you a good conscience, a conscience that when it's properly functioning, tells you when you're following Christ and when you're, when you're offending Him. He gives you a sincere faith, a faith that's not pretend. And as we walk in obedience to Jesus, we'll maintain these things. Of course, we'll sin. But when we sin, we confess our sin to Jesus, and He cleanses our hearts again. And He helps correct our consciences so that we don't sear them. And He helps us to walk in sincerity and not in hypocrisy. But only as we produce this agenda of pure and obedient living can we produce the love that Christ intends us to produce, the desire to help other people and the courage to resist what is false. And this ultimately is what Timothy is to produce as a leader towards those who are in his charge. And this is what we are to produce if we are responsible to speak the truth to anyone else. And just to make sure that Timothy doesn't forget the centrality of this command, Paul reminds him of it once more in verse 18. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Timothy is to resist false doctrine and produce love in the church. This is how he is to wage the good warfare. This is how he was to fulfill the prophecies that early church leaders apparently spoke about his life. And this is how we are to live the Christian life too, by living lives of faith and obedience, lives that trust God, lives that value and obey his word, and lives that are quick to confess our sin and receive God's cleansing. And when we walk in this way, then we will be marked by the love God means for us to show each other. And so, friends, we must ask this morning this question, who are the leaders that we should follow? And the answer is this. We must avoid false teachers, those who major on the minors, those who are legalistic and licentious, and we must follow those who love us enough to tell us the truth, who remind us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us, who tell us this truth because they themselves have been transformed by the gospel, who give evidence in their lives that they have had their hearts cleansed, that they hold to a true faith, and that they hold God's word in high regard. Find leaders like this, friends, and follow them.